This is Dr. Baba Kazizadeh. You are listening to the Smile Podcast, where I will be sharing with you my unique and holistic perspective on beauty, health, and wellness. Hello. <laughs> Millions of people have surgery every year. Or you could just get a boob job. Using targeted Botox can be a miracle. Smiling like that is a skill. Your surgery has been successful. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Smile Podcast. Uh, I'm Baba Kazizadeh. I'm a facial plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills. And with this podcast, this is actually our number two uh, in our series of podcasts. And today I have a very, very special guest, my partner in crime in my practice, Dr. Larian, Bobak Larian. We have the same first name, which um, surprises everyone. Sometimes they think we're married because our first name is the same. So we laugh about that often. Um, but, uh, Dr. Larian and I have been basically inseparable for about 22 years now. Um, we met many years ago when we were undergrads, actually, when we were probably 19 or 20 years old, we went to different universities, but we met through a mutual friend. We did our medical school training at different universities, but we ended up in our fourth year of medical school, spending one four week rotation together at UCLA where we um, you know, just kind of meshed immediately and knew that we had to do our training together. And we ended up doing our training at UCLA uh, and had a neck surgery. Uh, I went ahead and did a facial plastic and reconstructive surgery fellowship. And then when I came back, uh, I joined Dr. Larian in his practice. And uh, for the last 17 years, we've been in practice together. And uh, hopefully we'll practice together for another 20, 30 years, God willing. But it's been an amazing, amazing process. And Dr. Larian is very, very unique. He's just a special, special person. Not only a great surgeon, but a great humanitarian, great bedside manner, great clinician, great thinker, and just couldn't be a better friend. So welcome, welcome. Thanks, Bobak. Thanks for being here. I couldn't, I couldn't ask for a better circumstance in my life professionally and in terms of friendship. Uh, so many things to be thankful about. Truthfully. Yeah. No, we've been very lucky because um, as many of you know, with, uh, within the workforce, we, um, you know, it can be very easy to burn out and get tired and get complacent. But we've, you know, just we have an amazing relationship work, friendship, and uh, all the things that we end up doing, we really, you know, inspire one another. And it's been just so amazing. And I think that's why we still have a tremendous passion for what we do. Although we do things, we have some overlap, but a lot of what we do are different. Uh, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, the title of today's podcast is Bones, Moans, and Groans. And we'll get to why that's the title of this podcast. But um, uh, I wanted to bring Dr. Larian. He is one of uh, the world's top experts in parathyroid surgery. And even though parathyroid surgery is probably something many of you have never heard about, it is actually um, a surgery that uh, is uh, potentially curative of a major problem that many people experience uh, called hyperparathyroidism. And I'll let Dr. Larian kind of tell us a little bit about what hyperparathyroidism is and how do people present with it and uh, what has been your experience with it? 
Well, first and foremost, the uh, parathyroid glands, which are tiny little glands in, right behind the thyroid, are um, purely in charge of controlling the calcium level in your bloodstream. Now, that doesn't sound like a very important thing, but in actuality, it is absolutely vital for normal functioning of every single cell in the body. Uh, the body uses concentration changes of calcium inside and outside of it to communicate between the different parts and send messages and, and to control how me mechanisms and processes work for cells, organs, and so on. So when we're born, our body genetically decides what our calcium should be. So whatever number that is that we are gen genetically designed to have all our life, the parathyroid glands try to maintain that calcium number. And so when you're two years old, your calcium will be a certain number, let's say 9.5. When you're 92 years old, your body's going to try to keep your calcium at that 9.5 because every part of your body thinks that your calcium normally should be 9.5 and will make moves based on that 9.5. So it wants, when it wants to pass on a message, it'll change the calcium inside the cell from a 9.5 to a 9.8. And that starts a cascade of messages inside the cell that turns into a process and a function for that cell, for that organ. The heart, the nerves, for example, when they conduct the signal, they change the concentration of calcium inside the nerve fiber, and that passes the message all the way down the fiber to the end of the fiber, and then the message through a neurotransmitter like serotonin and dopamine gets transmitted to the next nerve. And that transmission, the, the intensity of that transmission is based on how much calcium is going inside the cell. So the concentration is really important, and the parathyroids work tirelessly to maintain that calcium balance. So I have a question. What's the typical situation kind of when you, that someone presents? How do they present? What is the, you know, we call this segment bones, moans, and groans, but what's the typical situation where people are experiencing that they kind of don't know why they're experiencing, and they're going to their doctors, and the doctors are saying, well, everything looks good. Um, what's, what's that typical scenario? How do people typically present with this? So when, when your calcium is not at the level that it should be, so again, if your body wants a 9.5, but now your calcium is 10.5, a unit above what it should be, not a tremendously high number, but just above what, what your body expects it to be, then your body will run inefficiently. So the first symptom and the most common symptom these patients have is fatigue. They feel like they just can't keep up with the work that they used to do. They feel like they've just gotten older. Uh, you know, the body's running inefficiently for them. They have to put more effort into getting the same job done. And that's how it starts. And then as it progresses, they feel like, well, my, my brain's a little foggy. I'm not as clear as, as I used to be. I can't focus and concentrate. And then their sleep starts to get affected. They feel like, ah, I can't sleep quite so well, and not as many hours, and my sleep is not as deep. And then it starts to affect their memory, so they feel like, well, I can't remember things quite so well. But, you know, this is a disease of people who are in their middle to later ages of their life. So it's easy to rationalize, well, I've gotten older, so I'm getting more tired, my memory's fading a little bit. It feels like a natural process, but it just feels like it crept up on you like that, right? And then when, you know, when a 50-year-old man goes to the doctor and says, hey, I feel more tired, you know, my memory's not so well, I'm not sleeping quite so well, I'm a little bit more moody and lose my patience a little quicker, the easy answer to that is 
well, you know, you've gotten older, maybe you're beginning to develop anxiety, maybe we should put you on some antidepressants, right? Let's look at your thyroid hormone level and maybe put you on some thyroid medication. But those aren't the sources of the problem, right? The symptoms are very nonspecific at the beginning stages of this disease, right? But as the disease progresses, right, then the kidneys start to not function so well, right? And they can start to form kidney stones. Because the major source of calcium in the body is your bones, 98% of the calcium in your body is in your bones, um, the bones start to lose calcium. So b bones, the first part of the acronym in there <laughs> is achy bones. They start getting pain and discomfort in their bones because calcium's leaking out of those bones and not remodeling appropriately, right? As this process continues, then they start to have mental issues, right? They're agitated and irritable, and they, they start to feel like they're getting psychiatric issues, like anxiety and depression, and later on, more severe functional issues. So the psychic moans, right? And their stomach starts to malfunction, and the intestines don't work so well, so acid production goes up, they get heartburn and this, you know, the gassiness and stomach aches, so stomach groans comes into play, right? So bones, moans, groans, and stones, stones. Is, is the last one of the things. But those are later stages in the process. So these, this acronym of, of bones, moans, groans, and stones really happens in much later stages of the disease. The early stages are, I'm just tired and I feel like I just got older in the past two years, right? Which is easy to dismiss. So it's really, and this is one of the things that we often talk about in medicine, you have sometimes specific issues. Like for instance, you have a lesion in your cheeks, it's biopsied, it's skin cancer, you need to go treat that, you take that out. That sometimes I feel like it's much easier to manage than generalize where every organ of the body is impacted. And that's what kind of hyperparathyroidism is like. Yes, you know, the diseases that of the hormonal system very much act like that because one part of your body produces a chemical, puts it in the bloodstream, and it goes everywhere else in your body and has its impact everywhere else. So the consequences of this is generally very nonspecific, you know? So you have to have a very astute clinician looking and being aware of this condition to, to look for it. The problem with hyperparathyroidism is that it's, it's very slow in onset, right? The symptoms are nonspecific, and... I dare say it's not a very sexy disease, you know? It's, it, does, it doesn't cause a, a severe disease early on, you know? It doesn't, it's, it doesn't lead to mortality. It's not like diabetes where all sorts of problems come up and people have kidney failures and vascular disease and things like that, which manifest fairly quickly. And if you don't take care of your sugars, the patient can go into a coma, even at the early stages of diabetes. Hyperparathyroidism doesn't have that, but it has very long-lasting effects, right? And because it's hard to diagnose, oftentimes patients come to you when their bones have had a lot of loss and have osteoporosis, or they've been deeply impacted and every other possibility has been ruled out. And finally, the diagnosis of exclusion was the hyperparathyroidism rather than the beginning diagnosis. Yeah. Well, Dr. Larian, from personal experience, actually about, I don't know, 12 years ago, I was telling him a little bit about my mother-in-law who was kind of fatigued and had some issues. And he said, you know what, let's look at our calciums. And she yes. ended up having this issue and right. you know, he ended up 
doing surgery on her very successfully. So this is, I think, one of those things that can easily be missed because you go to get your blood work and your calcium is just a little bit high, but maybe not above what the ranges are mm -hmm. on the blood work. Right. And again, all the other symptoms are very nonspecific. So it's very easy to say, look, you know, you're tired, you're stressed, you're, you know, you're working hard, you know, you, you just had a, you know, child or a grandchild right. and you're traveling a lot. So um, how, so that's kind of how they present. Now tell us kind of what the treatments are. What are the things that are important for if someone has a family member or themselves are experiencing this, what are the key things to getting the treatment, the right type of surgeon, the right type of clinician? Because there are several different specialties that actually interface on this problem. Right, of course. Well, first and foremost is getting the right diagnosis. And that can be a challenge because if, if your calcium number is not tremendously higher than the normal range, if it's just slightly above normal, it's easy for your doctor to say, perhaps you've been having too much dairy products or taking supplements, and that's why the, your calcium is yeah. higher. Let's look at it again next year. Like when you're doing your annual exam, your calcium is slightly elevated. Oftentimes we hear the patient say, well, my doctor made admission of it a couple of years ago and this said, let's look at it again. And then the following year, he didn't mention anything, you know, and the year after nothing. And then when I pointed it out to them, I said, oh yeah, it's still high. Maybe we should look into it further. So getting to the diagnosis is key and finding or and being attentive yourself to your, your labs and pointing things out to your doctors can be very helpful in figuring something out that maybe is not really blatantly obvious to them, right? But once you have the diagnosis and the diagnosis is purely made based on laboratory tests, mm -hmm. right? Once you have a diagnosis, then you need to see a specialist that treats it. Now, the treatments for hyperparathyroidism come in two forms. You can either take medications to control this abnormally uh, functioning parathyroid gland, which produces too much hormone, which would mean that you would have to take this medication for the rest of your life to try to suppress and control this. In fact, you actually have to take two medications, one to suppress the parathyroid gland and one to stimulate the bones to grow, right? To strengthen the bone. Um, and and these medications, just like many medications, they can have side effects and problems and not every patient can tolerate these medications. The alternative to that is uh, doing surgery to remove the parathyroid that's overworking, right? As good fortune would have it, we only need one functioning parathyroid to be working properly for us to function normally. And we have four parathyroids. And that's how important the function of the parathyroid glands are. Evolutionarily, our body made four of these just in case Three of them get or knocked out. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the thyroid gland can, can get tumors in it frequently. And if a tumor invades one or two or three of the parathyroids, your body wants to still be able to function, right? The thyroid gland gets in, inflamed a lot, right? And that inflammation can cause the parathyroids to malfunction as well. So again, we have this redundancy to protect us because without a parathyroid gland, it's really hard to function. In fact, it's, it's not compatible with life, right? unless you take medications to supplement, like diabetics, supplement that lack of hormonal uh, function. In any case, um, so this, the treatment, the alternative treatment, and the more effective treatment is to actually do, do surgery and remove the parathyroid that's over-functioning, right? 
Now, to get to that point, you really need someone. Yeah, how do you find it? How do you know what parathyroid? You have four. Yeah, so based on the laboratory test, you're going to have no concept of which of the four is right. malfunctioning or abnormal. And what you have to do is actually do imaging studies to see which parathyroid gland is either bigger or overproducing uh, hormones, right? Now, there's many different types of scans that you can do. The first scan that I really usually like to recommend for my patients is an ultrasound. And the reason I like the ultrasound is that, especially when it's done by the surgeon who's going to be doing the procedure, it has a very high likelihood of being able to find the enlarged parathyroid, right, in the hands of an expert. But it has no radiation. Ultrasound has no radiation exposure. So there is absolutely no risk to the patient in doing an ultrasound. And if you can find that enlarged parathyroid on ultrasound, not only do you know which one's enlarged, but you almost have kind of a GPS for your surgery. Because you know where the parathyroid is, what its relationship is to the thyroid gland, the breathing tube, and all the local structures. So when you're doing your surgery, you can use that to navigate yourself to the abnormal gland, avoid uh, any kind of scarring or injury to the surrounding tissue, and minimize the surgery that you do. But this is not commonly done by most surgeons. Well, no, you know... um, (laughs) So this is, by the way, these are the nuances I just want to share with you between good surgeons and great surgeons, because these are extra steps that take time out of a surgeon's time with the patient. And for patient, uh, surgeons who are running uh, basically a mill, they don't have time. Ultrasound takes time to do in the office. It's not commonly done from my understanding. And so, because it takes a lot of time to actually navigate and find these things. And that's the difference between finding the parathyroid gland quickly and not quickly. Correct. Um, So in the past, originally, when you and I were in training years ago at UCLA, the way the surgery was done is that in every person, all four glands would be identified during surgery. So that we, we used to make a big incision on the neck, right? to allow access to everything, go down, find all four parathyroids, and visually try to decide which one is normal and which one is abnormal, right? And then biopsy all four glands, look at it under the microscope, and try to figure that out. And despite having experience, that wasn't always the ideal way, because when we were doing it back then, we would maybe take out one or two glands that looked abnormal to our eyes and under the microscope, and... 80% 80% of the time, the surgery was very successful, but 20% of the time, the, sur- the patient would still have high calcium levels because there was another gland that was over-functioning that we didn't see or couldn't figure out just by visually looking at it. Or far worse, sometimes biopsying all four glands caused all four glands to scar down. Shut down. And shut down and not right. work. And the patient would replace overactive parathyroid with an underactive parathyroid. So it wasn't a surgery that was ideal. and We always wanted to make changes. Yeah, it wasn't. Improve. It didn't feel great no. to do it. It wasn't it a feel was good. A, yeah, surgery. it wasn't a feel good surgery. No, not at all. You know, and because we're surgeons and we're into immediate gratifications, we always wanted to be immediately successful at the end of the surgery and be able to go out and hug the family and say, "Hey, everything went fantastic, yeah. and they're going to do great. Everything's beautiful, and we're done." Right? That's not what we could do back then. We had to come out and wait for lab results for the next few days to see how the calcium balance is and so on and so forth to be able to even confirm to them that we did a successful surgery or not. And that was tough. And so we tried to evolve the surgery. And as the technology improved, the 
the next step in evolution would, came. And the next step in evolution was to do a nuclear scan before the surgery, right? And the, nuclear, the notion of the nuclear scan was you would inject a nuclear material in the person. And this nuclear material was supposed to be very specific to the engine of the parathyroid cells, right? And, go, and, and be attracted to that engine. Yeah. As the, and the more it worked, the higher the attraction of this material to that engine, right? And, and we thought, great, we have something new and smart, and it goes to the parathyroid, and then we inject the person with this material and then put a probe that measures radioactivity and check all four glands and see which gland has yeah. more radioactivity. The problem with it is that you are using an external factor to measure an internal function. Not every engine is the same. So the efficiency of my mitochondria, my engine, may be very different than yours. So the attraction of my mitochondria to that nuclear material could be different than yours. So there was no consistency in that. So we knew even back then that when, when the patients are producing a huge amount of parathyroid hormone, which meant that their tumor would be bigger, even under those circumstances, the accuracy of the scan was only 85%, right? So not that much different than just doing it without it. Right. Because you had said 80% when you use nothing. Right. So now you're just maybe increasing a, a little bit. Incremental gains, yeah. you know, you're not getting 95%, yeah. 98% yeah. accuracy that you can depend on. And, and you know, when someone has a really high PTH and the tumor is big, it's relatively easy to find. You know, it's, yeah. this surgery can be a, like a needle in a haystack type yeah. of thing. But when someone had a PTH level that was not tremendously high, less than 100. By the way, PTH is parathyroid hormone, right. and that's one of the blood tests that you do before you proceed with the surgery. Right, and that's the blood test that confirms the yeah. diagnosis. When your calcium is high and your parathyroid hormone levels are high, that confirms that you yes. have this diagnosis. So, but a PTH is not a routine blood test. It's not. And not that's why many parathyroid hormone and hyperparathyroidism don't get picked up. Correct. It's right. because yeah. it's not routinely yeah. done. You have to have a degree of suspicion. Right. In any case, so so it wasn't a perfect test. And when you needed the most, when you needed the assistance of the Sestim EB scan, that's when it wasn't as accurate. When your PTH was just slightly above normal, that's when the Sestim EB wasn't so accurate. You know, it was but fifty percent. That nuclear medicine test. Yeah. And so again, when you needed that test the most, it's when it was the least accurate for you, right? And there are places, there are centers in this country that try to make the accuracy even more by having a, a systematic way of doing the scan. But the scan has its limitation, and our body is the way it is, right? So we've, we continue to evolve the surgery. And the next step in the evolution of the surgery was to look at actual, the actual function of the parathyroid gland, which is the parathyroid gland overworks by producing extra hormone, right? Yeah. It misreads your calcium level right, At, and thinks the higher calcium level is now your normal and tries to maintain it while the rest of your body is trying to counteract it and bring it down, right? So the parathyroid, the abnormal parathyroid fights the rest of your system to try to maintain that higher calcium. So it keeps producing more and more and more PTH or parathyroid hormone. The half-life of parathyroid is five minutes, right? So whatever you produce or I produce right now, in five minutes, half of that it's disintegrates, yeah. right? It goes away. It makes sense. It's a command. You know, when you give a command, when you push the enter button on your computer, it's you, quick. It's you want when your finger's off, you want that command to go away. Same thing for the body. The body wants to give a command and then for it to dissipate, ready for the next command. So when you have a parathyroid tumor that's overworking, the other three glands 
are actually underworking because the calcium is too high for them. They don't need to produce this hormone, right? And so we take advantage of that physiology, right? So when we do the surgery nowadays, before you go in the operating room, we check your hormone level in the preoperative area, right? And let's say you get a parathyroid hormone level of 100, right? And then when we do the surgery, and let's say on ultrasound, I found that your right lower parathyroid was enlarged, right? And then I, I take that right lower parathyroid out, and five minutes later, I'll check your parathyroid hormone level. If your hormone level goes from 100 to 30, which is more than a 50% reduction at five minutes, and then from 30 goes to 26 at 10 minutes, I know there's a downward trajectory and a plateauing effect. And your surgery has been successful. It confirms that my yes. surgery is successful, that that was the only parathyroid that was abnormal. And that's, that's not more than one gland that's abnormal. Because about 15, 20 to 25% of the time, you have more than one gland that's abnormal. Okay, so can you explain what a parathyroid adenoma is versus parathyroid hyperplasia? Because that is a very important distinction for the surgeon to know. Absolutely. So hyperparathyroidism presents in many different ways. The most common way is a parathyroid adenoma, which is a benign tumor of a parathyroid gland. Okay. And that benign tumor happens because one cell in a parathyroid gland that has roughly about 5 million cells in it gets a mutation in it that changes the calcium level that it desires to be at. So if you normally you're at 9.5, and you get this mutation, now your calcium may want to be 11 for this cell. And as, the, as it keeps producing PTH to come to 11, the normal cells and the normal glands stop working because the calcium is too high for them. And that one cell keeps working and working. And because our body works based on maximal efficiency, cells that are active will grow and get bigger, like muscles, right, that were working. And cells that are not working will shrivel up and get smaller, right? And so that, that cell turns into a full tumor, right? And all the cells in that tumor are now set for a calcium of 11, and that's a parathyroid adenoma. So 80% of the time, 85% of the time, people have a singular adenoma. 10% of the time, you get an adenoma and two separate glands at the same time, right? And the reason that happens is probably because that person is exposed to some environmental toxins. They have two different changes or mutations. Right. And if those mutations happen to be happening at the same time, right. causing a calcium shift that's close in those two, then you have two tumors developing at the same time. And then parathyroid hyperplasia is when all of the cells in all of the parathyroid glands are faulty, right? And all of them are overactive and overproducing. Usually that's caused either by kidney failure, by people taking medications like lithium. Lithium causes, induces that or it's caused by a genetic base. So if it runs in the family yeah. and all the cells have this faulty problem in them, these cells keep growing and growing and producing more hormones. So the treatment for each of these different presentations of hyperparathyroidism is different. But the adenoma, with a single adenoma, you just have to remove that one gland. But the double adenoma, you have to identify both of the abnormal parathyroids and remove Take those two and preserve the remaining two that are healthy and normal. With hyperplasia, you can't, you can't really cure them, but you can reduce the number of abnormal cells to a number that was functional for them when they were in their teens or much younger, right? And in doing so, what you're doing is you're buying them hopefully 20, 30 years of time before this gland grows large enough again to give trouble, right? And so you're, you're do reducing the number of abnormally 
overactive parathyroid cells with a hyperplasia. Okay. Now, you've pioneered a surgery for this min minimally invasive parathyroidectomy. What is the difference between that and the traditional parathyroid surgery? What do you, I mean, what are, you're, you're doing this outpatient now, so patients don't need to be hospitalized. No. And what else is it that kind of differentiates this from a traditional surgery? Well, again, the traditional surgery was with the idea that you go in there, you find all the glands and you make an assessment visually and maybe based on biopsy. And we knew that there was a lot of limitations on that and wasn't a very satisfying surgery, unfortunately. And the difference with this is that although when people say minimally invasive surgery, they think that we're talking about a smaller scar, right? And yes, that can be good and nice and everything else. But your scars are small. Yes, <laughs> They're like teeny. Yes. Well, you know, this, this is a disease of, of younger women, you know, and it matters to them that they have a scar that's not obvious, that doesn't take the attention away from their smile, their face, their expressions, and someone when they're talking to you, they're looking at your neck. That's not what you yeah. want. You want them paying attention to you as a person rather than your, your scar. So I try to minimize the scar, but that's not really the main focus of the minimally invasive surgery. The main focus is to be less invasive under the surface, right? So that you don't cause any kind of trauma to the tissue. You know, when we swallow our Adam's apple, if you actually feel your Adam's apple as you're swallowing, it goes up and down with each swallow. So when you're doing surgery under the surface in the neck and you touch both sides of your neck, you're gonna affect the gliding process of the whole throat, right? And it may not impact you immediately after surgery or the first few years after surgery, but in the long term as you age, the fact that things don't glide so well can have long-term consequences and have swallowing consequences that, that you'll feel as you get older. And it puts nerves at risks. And you have the nerve to your yeah. voice box on both sides, right. right? So the less invasive you are, the less likely it is for those to be damaged. And also, you have four parathyroid glands. If one of them is faulty, there is no reason for you to be going and looking and biopsying the other ones if there is a f way for you to determine which one is abnormal before the surgery and take advantage of the physiologic fact that those th other three glands are not really producing a lot of hormone, right? And the abnormal gland is, is producing hormones. So the minimally invasive surgery that I'm talking about is doing all your homework before surgery, knowing which gland is abnormal and overfunctioning before surgery, going in there, focusing yourself, you know, being super focused on going and taking out that gland, checking the hormonal function immediately before and immediately after. And if the hormonal function you see drops more than 50% and appropriately into the normal range, then you know the other three glands are functioning properly. You close up and you come out and you don't affect those glands. You don't create scarring around them. You don't create the potential for them to not function because scarring is developing or you can damage the blood vessels feeding those parathyroids. So the minimally invasive surgery is to be minimalistic under the surface rather than just this incision. Well, as a side note, I know he's talking about under the surface, but I know I'm the plastic surgeon, but Dr. Larian literally does the surgery through a teeny, teeny, like a thumb length yes. incision, and he spends so much time in closing it, it looks just unbelievable. By the time it heals, it is, it's pretty impressive. I have to say, I mean, for all the work that you do, underneath to do it through that little incision and close it so beautifully and cosmetically it really impacts because people's you know 
people don't want to have, you know, you know, scars. Oh, you know, absolutely. they just don't want to have scars on their face, neck, whatever absolutely. area. And, you know, it also reminds them of this process and people don't realize that medical issues can cause emotional scars. Absolutely. And so when you see a scar in your neck and you constantly have a reminder of what experience you went through, it's not fun. So minimizing that is, I know like a lot of people don't think about it, but I think you have a very, very intense thought process for that. Well, I think you've hit on something really big because these poor patients really go through years and years of agony until they get to a diagnosis. They're yeah. the ones who've gone to their doctor years and years and said, there's something wrong with me. And the doctors told them, no, you're just anxious. You're just you know, stressed out. Take antidepressants, which doesn't help. And so there is a little bit of trauma or a lot of trauma associated with just coming to the diagnosis and nobody believing them. Right. And they themselves not knowing what's wrong with them, even though intuitively they knew. Because their something. families are saying, oh, my God, you're right. crazy. You're doing this. You're doing oh that. God. This yeah. is like, you know, they don't believe them. They think like, you know, it's a it's a big, big emotional, you know, problem. I, I have to tell you a little story. I, I operated on a f on the wife of a friend of mine who had this condition. And, um, and you know, I've known them for a long time and very lovely people. And a few months after surgery, uh, the husband came to me and said, I have to tell you, you've really affected my marriage. Whereas before, my wife would get upset so easily about certain conditions and people would get on her nerves so quickly. Today, I watch her and the same circumstances that would make her blow up and get upset and just lose her control i mean like lose her temper now she like takes it with stride and Beautiful. smiles right through it and our, not only is my life easier her life is significantly easier because she's just not affected by things as much right so essentially by doing this patients lives become an easier thing and more enjoyable of course you know but in any case i was talking about the trauma of this right yeah. so that that incision is a reminder of All that time, trauma, yeah. you know? So when you minimize that and they're not looking at their neck and not really seeing it, they're less affected by the whole thing. So the surface of it matters as well, too. Now, Dr. Larian, for those who don't know, is the clinical chief of head and neck surgery at Cedars-Sinai. He's a bigwig. He's <laughs> like, and not only humble, but like really, really big time. Um, but I know it's not just because of titles and reputation. You attract people patients from all over the world to come from Europe, Middle East, China, everywhere to come and see you for this. Why is it that you think, to me, that's usually a sign that those individuals don't trust the healthcare in their local community. Right. And that's why they're seeking attention. Why do you think that's so prevalent for this disease and for this problem? Very good question. Um, I think it's because the patients feel like I've been talking about these symptoms for a long time and you did not tell me what, I, what was wrong with me. So there's a loss of faith. I think in any patient-doctor relationship, that trust is the most vital thing, right? And when that trust is gone, then if your primary doctor says, oh, I'm sorry, after five years we figured out you have hyperparathyroidism, let me send you to this doctor. When the trust is gone, then, then the, the patients become very hesitant to trust any referral or anything else. And so that's already the baseline of the problem because most patients who have this condition 
don't know about it for years and years, right? And so, uh, you know, when, when the, the patients uh, contact me from other countries, and we sit down and talk, and they see I, I have an understanding, a gestalt understanding, you know, I, I have an instinct about this because I've treated so many patients with it, that I have an empathy and a compassion for what they're going through, you know, that their symptoms are not being dismissed by me, right? I'm paying attention and I'm trying to help them confirm their diagnosis, right? And see what's going on. And then once they have that diagnosis, they, that trust is built. So they come from all around the world for me to, to not only diagnose them, but also do their surgeries. I have to say, when I first started practice, my, I had a very broad practice. You know, I was doing head and neck cancer surgery, treating all sorts of tumors in this area. And you know, the, the tumors that you know, happen in this area can be, can be really gruesome. You know, a tumor growing in the tongue and throat and face. And terrible things can be there. And to, to kind of narrow my practice down to one of the smallest tumors that happens in the head and neck area, because I saw the impact of this disease on the, on the life of these patients, because I saw that a lot of them were not getting appropriately diagnosed, and that by having expertise in it, I, I could really affect more people, you know, and people who are not being heard. And that's, that's really what, it, what brought my interest to, to focus on this field. Yeah. And as I'm doing this, I find that every year I get better at it. And that's very satisfying. And you're passionate about it. That's Very what I see. So. I mean, yeah. you really, your eyes light up when you're talking about it. And you you have, you know, Facebook, big Facebook live that you do on a regular basis. So for those of you who have questions about this, definitely check out Dr. Larian's Facebook page and live and his website, larianmd.com. Yes. Uh, but uh, interesting that you brought up our earlier your earlier experience because a lot of people don't realize the progression of how surgeons get to where they're at like mm -hmm. when we started we would spend countless evenings and late nights treating facial fractures right we spent you know 16 hour surgeries you know dr larian would take out you know cancers of the jawbone tongue I would be reconstructing it with tissues from other parts of the body. I would help him out with removing the cancer. He would help me out with the reconstruction. And even though we don't do those things as much now, what it did teach you is really understanding of anatomy, yes. understanding of what it takes to get an amazing result, even in the most dire circumstances. Absolutely. And also really understanding, and that's why I think the two of us really kind of, it's, it's, it's like a symphony. It is, and absolutely. working together or working with your nurses and technicians, like a symphony. So you have to, everyone needs to be on. And that's the difference between a great surgeon and I think an average surgeon and understanding the complexities and the different variances of the issues then brings you to where your passion is, and then you start getting really, really, really amazing with that. Absolutely. You know, if you had asked me 15 years ago if you're going to be a parathyroid surgeon in the future, I would have, I would have laughed at that because I just, I wouldn't have thought that it would be such an interesting field. But today, when I look at it, yeah. I find this disease to be fascinating yeah. because of the broad measure of effects that it has on a person, and the deep impact you can make on that person's life by treating this seemingly benign condition, yeah. but it isn't a benign condition. It really affects people deeply. 
And we'll have, um, so Dr. Larian, as we were talking earlier, uh, really has two main focuses, which is parathyroid and parotid right. surgery. And we'll have a separate, uh, uh, separate podcast to go over uh, parotid surgery. And part, part of this podcast is obviously we want to bring you in depth, bring you into essentially the living room of a surgeon and how they think, how they've evolved understanding so that it's not just like, you know, one minute, you know, snippet. Right. It's really a more in-depth situation so that you guys can uh, either for yourself, family members, or as general information, understand how, um, you know, elite doctors like Dr. Larian think and evolve and get to where they're at, as well as really understanding, um, you know, from patient's point, point of view, what they're experiencing. So we really wanted to kind of bring that to these podcasts where it's not just, you know, you know, kind of superficial layer, it's going into a deeper level. So that's been great. One question that oftentimes and lay people ask, they don't understand the difference between parathyroid and thyroid. Right. Can you explain? Because they're close to one another. That's yes. why they're, but they're completely different types of organs. So Absolutely. can you explain that for people who are watching and you know Absolutely. explain the anatomy a little bit? Absolutely. So the thyroid gland is a butterfly-shaped organ right in the lower neck right here. And it goes over your breathing tube in the middle. So half of it is on one side, the other half of the butterfly on the other side. It's in charge of controlling your degree of met metabolism, right? So it controls how your body uses energy and functions, right? The parathyroid glands control calcium, so an entirely different process. The reason they're called parathyroid is just meaning that they're next to the thyroid. So I think the name is actually bad because it makes people think that these, the function of these two glands is connected. It's not. They just happen to be next to each other. They share some blood vessels with each other and a location, and that's it. They don't share much in terms of functioning. Interestingly enough, the parathyroid glands were identified first by a, by a student, uh, as a biology student years and years ago. And this person wrote about it. This is more than 100 years ago. And was dismissed. And it faded into, into oblivion. Then uh, they were discovered in rhinoceros. Right? Wow. Because they're pretty big in a rhinoceros. And you know, they were studied by, by an anatomist and, and brought into view. And again, it just kind of went into, into the background because the functioning of it wasn't so clear. And it took years and years of, of looking at these things until finally people discovered, wow, this is actually a very important organ. And it happened because when people were doing thyroid surgery 100 years ago, if during that surgery all parathyroids would come out, the patient would get tetany and would Get and calcium would be completely out. Yeah, and then and then they would die. And the thyroid surgeon had to figure out why this is happening. So an interesting history on how it was discovered. And it was just kind of disregarded because it, it is a very small gland. It is the, the size of a grain of, um, I'm sorry, the size of a, a grain of rice, right? It's a very small gland and it's yellowish. It looks like fat and you have a lot of fat. It's really and hard to tell what it is. Honestly, like, Anatomically, I would say in the head and neck area, for me, that is the hardest. And I deal with these micro nerves. Yes. But that identifying the parathyroids, I feel like is one of the hardest things that we do, it, it, even it, when it's like big. Yeah, it, it is. But over the years, as you keep doing the surgery and keep looking for these parathyroid, 
you do, you're, you develop an instinct for it because you, you can recognize subtle changes in the coloring in the shape, you know, normal parathyroid glands have 50% fat and 50% parathyroid cells. So that's why they look very fatty and they're flattened out. And, and as they become abnormal, they become more rounded, mm -hmm. right? So when you're trying to find an abnormal gland, if you look at it, you're like, wow, this thing is, is, is kind of as round as opposed to a flattened out, yeah. squished gland, right? So subtle things, the coloring becomes a little bit more brownish as opposed to yellowish. Not, not brown, but a little brown. It's a strawy color, you know, change. So the changes are subtle as it's becoming more and more abnormal. And that's, that's the experience. You really need a lot of experience doing the surgery to figure it out. And that brings us to one of our last questions. Um, obviously, this, you've clearly have demonstrated that this is not a simple uh, surgery. It's yeah. not a simple diagnosis. And it's definitely not a simple clinical decision-making of what to do. So for some of our patients that, uh, or some of our viewers or people who are listening to the podcast, what questions should they ask their surgeon to make sure the surgeon is competent yes. to do this surgery? Yes. And when uh, do you think they need to you know, look elsewhere? Um. So just, just like all surgeries, when someone is focused and they're doing a lot of this, these surgeries a year, then they've, they've gained a lot of knowledge from that experience. Um, I, I say that the failures that I personally have had in doing parathyroid surgery, and th those failures by that I mean doing the surgery and coming out and the person is still hyper, yeah. or becomes hyperparathyroid again several months later. The sitting down and analyzing what happened that caused this is extremely important. And not to say, well, that happens, we fail sometimes, and that's it. Now, those failures are part of the reason I decided to, do, to focus on this. Because when I was doing the big cancer surgeries, the tongue cancers and jaw cancers, when the, that I would fail, I understood it. I knew, well, the genetics of this cancer was strong. It had already spread to other parts before... We got to the, to the operating room, but it was microscopic and we couldn't see it with any of our scans. Right. And three months after surgery, it showed up. So I understood, I could, could comprehend the reason I failed right. dealing with those cancers. I couldn't understand the reasons for some of the failures that I was having at, at the early stage of my career when treating this parathyroid uh, problems. And that led me to believe that actually I wasn't as educated about this subject, that I didn't understand the disease as well as I thought I had, right? So I started investigating. And, and that's reading. not what we trained, uh, that's not what we were taught in no. a sense. No, it was it very simple, yeah, simplified. I, yeah, I, I feel like we, we learned on how to be a surgical technician when it came to a parathyroid disease as we came out of our training, but we weren't analytical about how to address yes. this disease and how to diagnose the person properly and what to do about which patients to take to the operating room and operate on, which patients should not need surgery and shouldn't have surgery and should be monitored. And all those things were not part of the analysis. And I think the part of the reason was that these patients were being referred to us by an endocrinologist. The endocrinologist made the decision of if the surgery or no surgery. surgery. Right. So we weren't involved in the analytical part of it. We were essentially just technicians. You know, but you don't believe that. I don't believe that today yeah. at all. In fact, I think that's, that's the biggest mistake you can make as a surgeon is 
is for you to be just a technician. That right. if someone walks into your door, say, hi, okay, I just do the surgery because you came to my door. No, you have to be very anal analytical about this, this disease and, and really take the whole picture of the person. You know, you're treating an individual and not just a tumor. And take the whole p person into view, view, into consideration when you make the decision to proceed with any kind of treatment. And I think those were the things that made me look into it into more detail. And nowadays, I read all the articles that I can about this disease, and I find that I learn a lot about this. The other thing that I do is I go around the world and see other parathyroid surgeons, right? And every time I go see a surgeon doing their parathyroid surgery, a little I, I get a little bit of insight from their experience, from the mistakes they made and learned from, you know? And it can be a, something as simple as how to approach the person in the clinic and how to talk to them yeah. about what they're going through or just an instrument they use in the operating room. Every little thing is valuable because all those aggregate of experiences can help me be better at what I do and help the person. Well, I want to thank you. Yeah. This, by the way, we have lunch together all the time. Yes. We see each other at the office, but we still can't get enough of talking to each no, other about all the things. <laughs> so I want to thank you for being here. And this was awesome. And I can't wait to do our parodic um, Looking forward to it. podcast. I think that'll be really, really helpful. And we'll do other podcasts with Dr. Laren because I think he brings a very kind of intuitive, analytical, clinical, common sense to healthcare. And that's what we, we are lacking. I think it's become healthcare has become very knee-jerk. You have this problem, you have high blood pressure, let's put you on medicines. You have diabetes, let's put you on medicines. It's not looking at the whole picture and seeing what we can do. Why is it these problems are coming about, going to the root of the problem, and whether it's an had an surgery, plastic surgery, you know, endocrinology, cardiology. I think that common sense is really, really important. So, so I want to thank you for spending this afternoon with us. This has been really, really awesome. And uh, I think for our viewers and listeners on our podcast, please leave comments, positive or negative. We want to hear back from you guys. And if you have any questions about uh, future segments that you want to. Uh, you want us to focus on. And we have a very special uh, uh, process that we're starting, which is leave comments for our guests. And we will have our guests respond uh, within a short time to your comments and questions and give you some guidance. And I think that'll be really, really great. And uh, we'll be able to make this very interactive. So please uh, keep us posted. And Dr. Larian, I want to thank you as always, for an amazing insight into this and this challenging uh, problem. It's so good to be here and to talk about something that I have so much passion for. Okay. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much.